Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking podcast. We got Farbs, we got Jim back, and we got Eddie. Uh, today in the booth, we got Scott Heckinger, uh, uh, a public defender here in New York, which is sort of an encyclopedic knowledge of, of everything going on here. We cover a lot of topics today. The history of policing, mandatory minimums, fair evasion, you know, which candidate Scott is looking at. Um, so if you're interested in getting into this, kick back and enjoy. All right, everyone, we're back. We got special guest Scott Heckinger on the pod today. Brooklyn DA, public DA. Nice. Don't no. even start. So we're that, off to a bad start. We're going to have to edit that out. Already so, we got, so we got Scott Heckinger on, uh, Brooklyn public defender. Um, fights the Brooklyn DAs. Fights the Brooklyn DAs. And if you've, uh, any of you are following him on Twitter, he's been kind of hot the past 24 hours. Uh, so <laughs> on I want So I want to kind of jump into that, but. Um, Scott, for, for anyone who doesn't know what a public defender is, maybe give people the little 101. Yeah. So when you are arrested, and by you meaning predominantly black and Latino people only living in certain neighborhoods, and you're charged with a crime and facing jail time, uh, you're entitled under the Constitution in a case called Gideon v. Wainwright to be represented by an attorney and to have one provided for you. Um, I don't choose who my clients are. I don't choose the people I represent. I work in arraignments. And I meet people who have been arrested within the last 24 hours for anything from jumping the turnstile to more serious crimes and everything in between. And um, I represent them from that point when uh, they find out who I am, they find out what they're charged with, and they see a judge to determine whether they're going to be sent to Rikers Island or not to the end of the case, whether that's trial or more frequently or overwhelmingly pleas. 95% of convictions come from guilty pleas. So public defenders uh, really breathe life into the Sixth Amendment right to counsel. Um, and oh, ensure I love that, that line. Yeah, we, 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 the way that You've I think about it is we- that, right, Scott? I mean, I've said it a couple That's times. poetic. But we, st- we, stand, we stand really as bulwarks between the heavy hand of the state and uh, the people who are criminalized by it. And so how long have you been doing it? Since 2012, officially. I practiced before then in law school, um, I started doing public defense, criminal justice related stuff right off the bat. I, the first day of law school, I heard Brian Stevenson speak. So he's yeah, a professor he's a at god. NYU. He's a god. And Shout out. He's a god. He's a, <laughs> and then he was already, you know, superhuman, but he wasn't God yet. And I, I was like, I came into law school being like, I knew I wanted to do something to give back and to, to, to help people that were less fortunate than me. I didn't know what issue was going to be. I heard him speak and I was like, was it? done. Criminal <laughs> justice. And so I like just tethered myself to him and he became a mentor. And I did some early research for him on uh, juvenile life at that parole. He encouraged me to go down to yeah, New Orleans. Yeah. I was in the first intern class down, the public defenders down there. And I, I guess, I mean, that's, it just was, it, it, it was a calling I didn't realize I had until I started doing it. Yeah, he's a special being. He I've really been following is. him for a while. We've pretty, have a decent relationship. He's, he's, it's crazy. I joke, I joke often, I say, if, if God was a person, Brian Stevenson would be that. He is that, he, that person. He is dedicated to his work. He's dedicated to people. He's dedicated to justice. And he talks about it in a way that is ridiculously accessible. But the great thing with him is you'll never get that when you meet him. There's, it's, he's just like the most accessible person and humility. It's, oh, yeah. He, just, he walked into the room at the Equal Justice like Initiative. There was a group of 10 of us. 
and he was the most humble person in the room. Yeah. I have a group of mainly organizers. Yeah. Um, you just, you have this image of what this person's going to be and you already ex expect some of that. And then he just takes it to a whole other level. Right. And that's um, what makes him so special. So, so, for, so that's first what makes day. him special. And it's also what makes him such a good advocate. 100%. Like I was the luckiest guy in the entire world to be able to see one of his Supreme Court arguments. It wasn't because wow. I was able to like, a get treat. a ticket to get in. I slept out overnight on the street <laughs> outside the Supreme Court to be wow. able to see him argue the juvenile life of that parole case. Which was a and big he, case, by the way. Extraordinary. Yeah. We, the what only, year was that? This was in 2000, I want to say eight or nine. Oh, yeah. Um, we're the only country in the world other than Somalia yeah. that, that sentences children to die in prison. In prison. Yep. But in that argument, he was talking to the Supreme Court in the same way that he would talk to you or to you or to me, uh, just in basic human terms. Yeah. And that's what makes you know, his advocacy outside of court and inside of court so, so special. And, and he does all of that with authenticity. He doesn't like sort of like, you know, put roses on things. He'll tell you how it is in a way which you just kind of have to accept it. Mm -hmm. But real, truthful, regardless of what room he's in, he's the same person. Who was on the bench during that argument? Do you remember? Oh, all the judges that, all, except all, all for All the Kavanaugh. judges except for Kavanaugh. Kennedy was there at the time, I think. And if you Scalia were, was probably there? Scalia was there. Oh yeah, he was, right. So, uh, he obviously voted no. He right. voted no. But it's not obvious. So I'm, I'm actually, I had to think for a second because Scalia actually, as an originalist, was actually really good um, in a lot of issues that helped, that, that were helped my clients. So I helped kind of the, the separation between kind of the government's power to infringe on individual liberties and individual liberties. Like the Fourth Amendment, the whole point of the Bill of Rights was to do the exact opposite of what the British used to do, which is just like bang down doors and like rush in and like search you without warrant, et cetera. And so when it came to the Fourth Amendment and, and, and searches and seizures, you actually found folks like Scalia would be on the side of, of right, in my right. opinion. Right, right. It's really interesting with this stuff. We, our friend, who you might know, Xavier McElrath Bay, who's with the Campaign for Fair Sentencing of Youth, um, you know, he talks about often that, you know, you just some we've had they sometimes have had better luck in some of the red states changing around some of the legislation than they have in places like Maryland and Illinois, which are a bastion of like blue states. But they're these moderate blue states that they've had some there's a harder time. So it, it's not always on party lines when it comes to some of these issues. Can you you, you mentioned uh, Scalia being a good originalist. Can you can you just touch on really quick for the for the listeners um, the concept being a, a originalism in terms of interpreting the Constitution? Well, <laughs> originalism is in the in, is in the eye of of really the jurist. The thing with with kind of legal theory and how you apply you know your legal theory to the Constitution is you kind of can get whatever outcome you want. Originalism is supposed to <laughs> be much. figure out exactly what, what the, the framers, framers of the Constitution met at the time when they ratified it when uh, there Which were, can be problematic, by the way. Which, which can definitely be problematic because it turns out that society changes, yeah. that new technologies come, you know, come to fruition. We like have AR-15s now instead of muskets. They did not have the internet back then. I'm a so human being now. I can vote. <laughs> right? Exactly. Um, there was slavery back then, but then there was reconstruction. But in any event, um, originalism is supposed to be, okay, figure out exactly what they thought because it's simpler that way or this is what it's supposed to be. And the other side of that is kind of this idea of a living constitution, living, breathing constitution. Constitution, where the framers purposefully set out language that was broad enough to encompass the changes that would come. Yeah. Um, I, I adhere to that second uh, that second form if I was ever going to be a jurist. But the problem with originalism is it really you can 
make it whatever outcome you wanted to want to make it. Yeah, but it was when I first heard about the, the concept of originalism, when I was just sort of learning, you know, more, um, I was like, oh, that's great. You're taking things into historical context. You must take history into account when you're understanding, you know, the constitutional interpretation of, of you know, of these cases, of these legislation and so forth. And, you know, that can only help in, as so many people make so, so many bad decisions ahistorically. Um, but obviously it, it sort of bites both ways, I guess. Right. But also the framers were deeply flawed too. So we have to All take right. that into account. <laughs> but the, the, the reality in the criminal justice context is if that, if, if originalism really was what folks cared about, if we cared about what the framers intent was, aside from the fact that, uh, they, they negotiated for, uh, black people being considered three fifths and yep. only men and not women and, uh, et cetera, you'd actually have a system that was very different from what we have today. I mean, mass incarceration or mass criminalization wouldn't exist. You'd have public trials, not 95% guilty pleas. You'd have uh, a state where, you know, people who I represent wouldn't be terrified to walk from their house to get a sandwich at the bodega without being stopped and frisked. You'd have, uh, you wouldn't have laws like in New York, which are uh, thankfully changing, where the prosecution was able to withhold evidence until Discovery. after the trial started. Yep. Uh, it would look very different. You wouldn't have people sentenced to, you know, the, the kinds of sentences that, that we have right now, despite right. the fact that... Uh, and as Brian said, you wouldn't have a system that treats you better if you're guilty and rich rather than innocent and poor. That's right. Well, can we talk a little bit about those minimums? Because you wrote a piece on mandatory Not minimums uh, for the New York Times. Um, which I think we all got a chance to read, yeah. but uh, you know, whether the, uh, we shouldn't be the ones to explain it since you were the one who wrote it. So That's maybe fine. you can give a, a quick highlight of kind of the, the main gist of it. Yeah. So mandatory minimums, what are these? Uh, they were laws that were passed really like fifties through nineties and increasingly that aimed to take away discretion from judges who different States thought were either sentencing people too harshly or too leniently and kind of have some, some structure around it. But what they wound up doing was just transferring the discretion to prosecutors. So you're charged with the crime and it comes with a mandatory minimum. So in New York, first time arrest, uh, you're 17 year old, you're stopped, frisked, they find a gun on you. Uh, no allegation of use, it's considered a violent felony that comes with a min mandatory minimum of three and a half years in prison. Uh, what winds up in a max of 15. But the mandatory minimum matters because you could go to, if you go to trial and you lose, and trial is risky, uh, if you're convicted, the judge cannot sentence you to anything less than three and a half years in prison. And the prosecutors know this, and defend, defend, uh, defenders know this, and obviously the, the people who are accused know this. And so if the prosecutor comes to you and says, all right, I'll give you a plea to a lesser charge in two years, or probation, regardless of whether you're innocent or guilty, regardless of whether you've been stopped and frisked unconstitutionally, you're going to take that time, plea. You're going to take that, yeah. Because, because it's just, it's the reasonable choice. Yep. Because, you know, anything Because you don't have it, too many choices, right? No, you don't yeah. have too many choices. And so mandatory minimums become one of these kind of tools in the toolbox of prosecutors in the system that coerces people not to move forward with their case, not to test the evidence in trial. Um, most people, though, think about mandatory minutes in the context of the suppression of the truth, suppression of, uh, of, of, of trials, and a major reason why uh, you know, trials basically don't exist anymore. What I was writing about in this op-ed was the fact that what people don't think about is the connection between mandatory minimums and police violence. Now, what's the connection there, right? Well, because so many people plead guilty, they plead guilty not just before their trial starts, but before hearings to test the unconstitutionality of police 
procedure even happens. And so what winds up happening is police officers know that when they make an arrest, it's exceptionally unlikely that they're ever going to have to take the stand and face questioning for their behavior by a by a mm. public defender, right? Wow. And so the truth gets suppressed in that way, number one. Number two, when p- folks plead guilty, it also closes off their ability to sue for civil rights violations yep. in federal court because it's an admission that there was probable cause. And so what I was what I was arguing is, folks, like we have to abolish mandatory minimums for a lot of reasons, but one of those reasons that folks don't think about, and what we see as defenders every day, is the insulation of police misconduct. I think you gave an example, real quick, I think you gave an example of it, you think you were telling, I think, I think it was you, someone was, uh, someone who I'm following was talking about a case of someone that they were defending, um, and that they decided to go to trial, and they ended up getting acquitted, but, you know, even up, up to the last second, they got, like, some sort of deal for probation, they didn't take it, and then that same police officer who basically kind of fudged things, you continued seeing on the circuit, right? And it's crazy because it's like that person, in essence, is perjuring themselves, and that should be like something that they actually should go to jail for. But yet they get to continue on this circuit. So I guess some prosecutors, uh, I think like Larry Krasner and a few others, are putting together a list of like almost like a do not call list of these police officers. But how is that like the only thing we can do? It, it's not the only thing we can do. I mean, so for so that was my case. He didn't actually wind up going to trial because we went to this hearing and the judge found that the that the officer was actually incredible and yep. so suppressed yeah. the gun that was found as a uh, as the fruits of a violation of his constitutional rights. And the prosecution had to dismiss because how are you going to bring someone to trial for possession of a gun without the gun? Yeah. Um, but the troubling piece was that months later, I found out a colleague of mine had uh, a client who was charged with the same thing, kind of the same f- bad search facts. Uh, and that same prosecutor, after knowing that the judge, w- uh, that the officer was found incredible, relied on them again. And then beyond that, that I saw that same, that same officer swearing out a search warrant to search someone's house a couple weeks later as well. And so it really drove home that it's not just abolishing mandatory minimums. It's not just pushing police forces to actually hold uh, their their folks accountable, and they should be. I mean, I think if you if you lie on a little piece of police paperwork and you have a gun and a badge and you're entitled to take away someone's liberty, that should be enough to get you fired from that job. Uh, we need to do, but we still need to do more. So prosecutors, like you said, are starting to issue these do not call lists. I don't think they're broad enough, but it's at least a start. It sends the message that we're not going to stand for this. And if prosecutors don't rely on the officers who are making rela- arrests. Uh, it it kind of will dry up their ability to to just lie and, yeah. and kind of continue making their way up the, the chain of command. So I've um I've been doing some work with the DA's office in Brooklyn, also in, in Philly. And you know, one of the things we've pushed the DA on, I work with CBE and a lot of other organizations. So we meet with DA Gonzalez on on a monthly basis and we talk about some of these things and one of the last things we've talked about was that credibility list, mm-hmm. which we sort of like um, been pushing him to put that list out publicly. I mean, he's, he's had one internally, uh, but we thought that it would be really helpful for him to put that list out publicly, but also to um, publicly acknowledge 851 as a bill, which I'm sure you know about that he'll support as a prosecutor. 851 is pretty much uh, a law that's trying to 
you know, I'm gonna let the attorney talk. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't. I don't need to. You. Yeah. I mean, you, okay, I'll go for it. Yeah, you go. <laughs> I know my lane. <laughs> you brought you on to do all the work. <laughs> it's too early, guys. No. So, so civil rights law. It sounds really like nice, actually. Civil rights law 50-A um, is one of See? the two most restrictive laws in the entire country. It it completely suppresses any records related to police disciplinary actions. Uh, it's not just the accused uh, and defenders who can't see it. Uh, the press can't see yep. any disciplinary actions, and the prosecutors actually can't either. Yep. And so um, what we're trying to do is repeal 50A. That's, that's the movement. And um, I'm hoping Eric Gonzalez will, will support that. But it's just us in Delaware uh, that have laws that are this restrictive. And there are ways, you know, the police always push back. Well, you can, you know, ultimately see it. Well, I'll tell you the way that we can see it. We have to file a motion after we have, and we have to have some evidence that they have some kind of disciplinary action. So we're already, like the people who are at least empowered to know that there's disciplinary issues, we have to put forward a showing. And at that point, then the judge has to rule whether there's a sufficient showing. Then the judge, if they decide it, has to review tens of thousands of pages of documents and determine in camera, so like away from everyone else, what's material and relevant without knowing you know, our defense. And so I had a case where this whole process, while my client was incarcerated in Rikers Island, took nine, something like nine or 10 months. And this was a judge who was really on top of her game. Um, and by the time she was done reviewing it and gave me, turned over the documentation, my client was so tired of sitting around, he wound up just taking a plea when it, before he was adamant about going forward. So yeah. anyway, that's- now, the, these are these are not just cases of people you know, getting arrested and searched. And, but, you know, these are cases of people who sometimes not only lose their freedom for a very long time. I mean, we had that, that detective in Brooklyn for years. Was it Scarcella? Yeah, that's right. I can't remember his last name, who pretty much was hiding behind some of these laws and some of these powers that the prosecutors have to snatch people off the streets and just send them to jail. And not for 10 years, 15 years, but... You have individuals coming home right now who've done 40 years, 50 mm -hmm. years, and there is no consequence on the back end for the officers and the prosecutors who've pushed these people through the systems and take away their, their lives in some ways. So how do we hold prosecutors, which I believe have the most amount of power in the legal system? Um, and I didn't know this when I was younger, but now looking at the power dynamic, I think prosecutors pretty much run the entire game. Mm -hmm. And I think over the last 40 years, most of the power has been shifted to, um, towards the prosecutor side. How do we hold them accountable and not just everyday sort of like exonerate people, but also hold the prosecutors and these police officers accountable so the behaviors won't continue? I, I think one of the, the, the keys is something that we're seeing across the country, which is just pushing to raise awareness baseline about the power of prosecutors. Knowledge is power. I did not make that up. I have. <laughs> we've heard that before, but it's true. Most people, right. like for for most of our history, and you know, especially these the past couple decades when their power became really enhanced by mandatory minimums, by right. pretrial detention, by the criminalization of everything, um, they've kind of they've just been doing their thing without any kind of oversight because no one knows that they had the power, let alone that they were elected, let alone that true. 
we have the power to choose who they are. Yeah, no so, checks and balances at all. So, so just like baseline, knowing who they are and holding them accountable uh, makes makes an enormous amount of difference. And once you have that, it's then identifying these discrete areas of things that we can actually push them to do. One is, as you mentioned, use their enormous political clout to push for you know, transformative change, repealing 50A. Uh, D.A. Gonzalez was enormously helpful. In He wrote an op-ed this yeah. past year pushing for discovery law changes. And when he threw his name into the ring alongside defenders and survivor groups and faith-based organizations, that's what I think was one of the major things that tipped the scale. So using political power. Number two, using the discretion for good. So more put in us pushing uh, them to, you know, do more alternatives to incarceration. Sure. Um, expand these do not call lists and really like send the message that they're not going to stand for this. But more than that too, it's, you know, in individual cases, you know, individuals are driven by incentives. And if like police, if line prosecutors know that they can withhold evidence and put someone in jail for the rest of their life or forget rest of their life, a day in jail is too much. Um, There needs to be consequences. And those consequences at the very least can't be you get a promotion. (laughs) But isn't the part of that struggle is the people who are more likely, right, to go through this process are the individuals which you referred to earlier that looks like me, young, black, brown, Latino, poor. And so it's a function of power in that sense because we know that there's discretion available for a rich white guy from the Upper West Side when they get arrested. And we see that all the time. Um, so how do you change the legal process while also understanding this is just a part of the fabric of America. Like if you poor, black, brown, there's just certain outcomes you, you're going to face. You have to acknowledge and understand that racism is baked into the system. People are, there's racism and there's overt racism and there's conscious racism and there's also subconscious racism, but it's baked in. And I think so that initially you just got to take you got to change the laws to take the power away. Because if you have the power to hurt and you have the power to be harsh, um, it's not just in New York, obviously, but around the country, that harshness is going to be used and that harshness is going to be used disproportionately against black and Latino people. Um, And then beyond that, you just need to say things, like we all need to say things like we're doing right now, which is acknowledge racism and not like run from it. Um, Acknowledge that it actually exists. Just acknowledge that it exists, right? And not like be afraid to like to use that word and to to um, to talk about it in the context of of the system. I mean, the thing, one of the things that burns me up so much was has been that like you know William Barr, yeah. right? The the AG, you know, in his confirmation hearing, uh, could not and would not bring himself to even acknowledge that the war on drugs has had a disproportionate impact on black and brown communities. It's indisputable. Yeah. By the way, Nixon even acknowledged that, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. You have people who were taped saying, literally, this the point was to destroy the black and brown community. But yet, you know, A.G. Barr refuses to acknowledge that. So that, you know. Yeah. Well, at the same time, you know, he second guesses... Uh, the inspector general's report on on the involvement or on the involvement or intersection of the FBI and the Trump campaign, but he he won't even bring himself to potentially second guess 
you know, data, statistics, facts. Yeah. A.G. Barr, who hurt you? Um. <laughs> well, this was the Barr, you know, Barr is obviously a, a, a very contemporary character, but, you know, let's broaden the context because you, mm. I mean, you slipped in your op-ed, you said, you know, uh, mandatory minimum, minimums, which started in the 50s, which a lot of people don't know, like 1950 with the, the Boggs Act, right? Mandatory minimums are actually quite old. Mass, incarcer- mass incarceration is actually quite old. It's not a new phenomenon. You know, I mean, so it's, it's kind of like there's clearly a, um, uh, a recurring character in this country and how we treat um, poor people, usually, you know, obviously predominantly um, black and brown, um, almost as sort of a system of social control. I, I, I mean, that's just the fact of it if you look into the history of it, right? So, I mean, like, the, the I mean, the 1619 project, right? That, was that, that's pretty much touch on a lot of what you're saying now, right? I think it touches on some of it. I mean, but the, the, Policing is sort of, there's two really good books that I learned a lot about the history of policing on. Um, uh, Radley Balco's uh, uh, Rise of the Warrior Cop was, was a big one. And then also Edmund Morgan's American Slavery, American Freedom, um, which talks about, so Edmund Morgan uh, first talks about how um, in colonial America, South Carolina, um, Virginia, and so forth as um, you know, the political and, and legal construction of race was as it was being created, um, it basically tied um, white citizenship to black criminality, right? Once you start creating these, these slave codes in Virginia, um, starting to sort of delineate people from enslaved and not enslaved, um, create sort of this uh, um, police citizenship where white citizens are bound to um, be aware of fugitive slaves and be aware of slave uh, insurrections. Um, and, and, and sort of it, it's tied into creating these, these newly, uh, sort of the advent of these new um, uh, privileges and immunities that were sort of could only be defined in counter reference to um, the enslaved people that didn't have those privileges and immunities, right. um, and and then even you know sort of uh, uh, you know so that's that's early uh, late 1600s early 1700s in Virginia South Carolina before the American Revolution right whiteness being uh, defined um, in part by the police by the policing responsibilities of overlooking and making sure that um, you restrict the movement yeah. of quote unquote right, black folks. people. Or, or, or um, you know, perceived uh, fugitive slaves, and then Radley Balco takes it even further, um, even before the American Revolution, and says, in the, in the early Southern colonies, um, there wasn't the first instance of actual organized policing were slave patrols right. was, in America. I was ask you the that. first, the institution like, of police, actually yeah, comes from is that, yeah. literally, uh, you know, tasked with people with uniforms and badges and the ability to search and seizure, and the main. Uh, focus in the southern colonies were worries over slave rebellions, right? So their main task was going around and making sure, working with masters, making sure that their um, slave rebellions were crushed um, immediately and checking passes of free blacks or supposed uh, or presumed uh, um, fugitive slaves. So you say, let me see your papers, you know, kind of thing. And if you don't have it, there's going to be consequences for you. That is the first instance of policing, which obviously permeated into the actual uh, official uh, police force that we, we've come to understand, right? So, you know, that is the first instance of an organized policing system in this country's history. Um, it's so embedded in the root. You talk about it, the embeddedness, the baked in this. It don't get no embedded, more embedded than that, um, but Rally Balco, good book. Yeah, I can check it out. And, and it's also, it goes back to, you know, Brian Stevenson talking about slavery to mass incarceration. There is a direct line. It isn't, 100%. you know, over here, <laughs> over there. It's direct um, from then to now. But, but 
you know, the, I think understanding that it's that it's kind of historical um, and and kind of thinking about where we are right now, it gets to this idea that like we feel that like the current system or there's this kind of overarching idea that it's inevitable. Like this is, you know, how it's always been and this is how it always will be. But like mass incarceration, mass criminalization, it isn't. Um, and, and in fact, you know, the system that we have right now, it's not just that it's unfair. It's not just that it's harsh against only certain people. Uh, it also doesn't make us safer. It also costs a fortune. And so, um, you know, just yesterday I was having, I was negotiating with the, with the prosecutor uh, who made a, what she called a, a generous offer of uh, two years in Rikers Island. So one year, two years consecutive in Rikers Island uh, for a client of mine that has mental health issues. And what I was, I was trying to talk to her about, and she actually started listening, was, look, two, two years later, he's going to come out more damaged than when he went in. Um, jail is not going to help him. Uh, he's going to come out and likely he's going to be rearrested and it's yep. going to cost to be on Rikers Island. It costs $832 per night. Yep. If anyone else is a better mathematician than me, that's, I think somewhere in the range of $650,000 for two years to incarcerate this guy. And so I was talking about it from the point of fairness, from the point of public safety and from the point of fiscal responsibility. And that's actually that going back to what you were saying, Michael, about this kind of cross like politics, it's, like, it's this, this strange bipartisanship when it comes to criminal justice. It's why you had DeSantis win in Florida, but felon, I don't want to say felon reenfranchisement, folks who have records I being like reenfranchised in, in real time checking myself, yep. uh, 70% like <laughs> 70% voting for reenfranchisement. It's because libertarians are like, what are you talking mm -hmm. about? Take vote, right, right to vote away. And fiscal conservatives are being like, this is actually further marginalizing folks and not enabling to get back involved and, and engage in society. And, and the folks on, on the left probably caring about all those things, including the individuals. So. And, and that's something I've learned along the journey doing this work is knowing exactly how to talk to individuals who spread across the political spectrum, right? So one of the things I've done in the past is if I'm talking to a senator from Kentucky, um, in this case, it would be Rand Paul, because I don't fuck with Mitch. Um, <laughs> also don't fuck with Rand Paul like that. But, you know, sometimes we get things done. Is to target what I know he cares about, right? At least what he says he cares about politically, which is keeping families together, and that he's a fiscal, quote-unquote, conservative. And so a lot of times doing this work is knowing what these folks claim that they care about and appealing to that, saying, hey, if you care about keeping families together and you're a fiscal conservative, which issue is actually diminishing those things more than mass incarceration? you separating families, and you're also spending a ton of money with a really bad return. So if you focus on this and, and, and you actually put your, 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 your policy where your politics are, then you can actually do something about it. Because every now and then you find that, even for conservatives or libertarians, that if you can appeal to the things which they claim to all the time, you may be able to get them to vote for something otherwise they probably wouldn't vote for, because it's all strategy right. in some ways, right? unfortunately. But it's also, it's also the general public. The general yeah. public idea of like, you know, crime and in prison we're just kind of uh programmed at this point to think that like the solution is the criminal criminal legal system yeah, yeah. Yep. and 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 it's just not so See, it's like checking yourself again 
from criminal justice. Oh, I don't say criminal that Criminal legal system. I like that, I, Scott. Cr- criminal, you my it's, man. It's not just, well, you know, it's it's lowercase j with heavy quotes. <laughs> exactly. Whenever I do criminal exactly. justice. Because <laughs> there's got, no damn justice in that no, system. No, but, but, it's, but it's about, it's about info, like, it's about information. You said family separation. That's one thing that, like, everyone's so, you know, offended, as they mm. should be, about yeah. what's going on in the border. Yeah. Uh, separating immigrant families, folks seeking, trying to seek Happens asylum. in our courtrooms all the time. Ev- every day. Every day. Yep. Family separation. And if you change, it language matters if you change the language people people's opinions start changing but it's also if you provide facts and you can break through the noise and the fear around what this system actually does and what it looks like it's similar like to the death penalty if you ask someone the binary question do you support or you don't someone who's like not steeped in this most people say they do but then you start adding in facts well uh, let me tell you about how many innocent people have been exonerated Mm -hmm. and it's likely innocent people have been have been killed the number starts you know going down to support you talk about the kind of the fact that it could happen in one state, but it can happen in another. It goes down. You talk about the race impact. You talk about the cost. You talk yeah. about the fact that it doesn't heal the trauma of survivors. Yeah. And you get to the point where actually most Is that people capital punishment? don't support it. Capital punishment. Yep. Yep. And we're starting, and we need to be doing this around all these issues, not just the most extreme ones in the, in the criminal legal yeah, system. Yeah, I mean, the, also the fact that capital punishment, again, as we talked about earlier, slavery did not end, that it evolved. Same thing, right? Capital punishment. If you study the states who've lynched the most amount of black folks, you'll find out that there's a direct correlation between them killing the same amount of black folks today legally. Um, But this one is very, very close to my heart. How do we get this country that claims to be the moral whatever of the world to realize that there are one of the few industrialized nation in the world that is still legally killing human beings. Brian Stevenson makes a good point. He said, can you imagine if Germany had capital punishment and that Jewish folks, let's say they commit a crime and that they were being killed through that same system? Just, just imagine you know, what that would be like. But here in this country, a country where we've systemically killed thousands of black people from the time they first got here to now, that we still kill them legally and it's legal and that most people just go about their days. Well, Brian Stevenson, I remember him <clears throat> saying that in some podcast or something, but obviously at first glance at it, yeah, we're good. Our, our ears are going to perk up and be like, like, wait a second, because we just, we're looking, we always look at Germany in the broader context mm-hmm. of the Holocaust, right? So, so like, yeah. you can't, you know, decouple it from the history of the Holocaust and saying if For they sure. had, if the state had, you know, the, the power to kill or, or if there was mass incarceration of Jews, they'd be like, yeah, clearly this is connected mm-hmm. versus we can't see that right. in America. Do you, do you, and Scott, do you think that, um, uh, in terms of you but why about, we can't see it, Ed? Well, I wanted to ask Scott about just sort of framing and bringing facts to the conversation. What do you think about Michelle Alexander's book? Because she frames it in a pretty intense way that at first I didn't totally agree with, but now I kind of agree with in terms of incarceration being the new Jim Crow. I mean, I think I think that's I think that's one part of it again, right? Yeah. It's about it's about social it's about social control. Um, but there's other forces at play too. It's it's you know intentional social control. It's a media 
that is sensationalist and that kind of feeds into public perception of what the right solutions are. James Foreman had an inter Ooh, really amazing, interesting, interesting addition to the conversation, which was that it's not just white people actually yeah. that were pushing these laws. It was well-intentioned black leaders uh, in the 60s and 70s that were also pushing these laws that it's called, his book is called Locking, Locking Up Their Own. You gotta read own. that. You have to read that. Um, and, uh, and there's also just like, there, there's a lot of intention behind it, and there's also, yeah, like, just happenstance. And we got to this system that is now this overgrown system that's having this impact. So I think there's intention behind it. There's well-meaning intention behind it. There's media. Um, and but, so, but going back, I mean, what is it going to take, right? Like, it's like humility. American exceptionalism is the most dangerous thing in the entire world because yeah. it's not just criminal criminal quote unquote justice, right? It's education, it's healthcare, all, connected. all these things. We think we're so amazing. We're not so number we, one in these? So, exactly. <laughs> I mean, people, and if you suggest that we're not number one, oh despite God. the fact that we know we're not number Dude, one, it's you. like you're unpatriotic yep. and you hate America. Go but back actually, home. I get that all the time. Fuck. <laughs> Go back to Haiti, Jim. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't get that and I, but, because I'm... Yeah. Not black. Yeah. Um, no, but 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 uh, you know, if we if we're able to to being critical of your country, I mean, this is something I, I I thought about, I think about a lot. Like being critical of America is patriotic, yeah. right? Like yeah, it that's just when you is. love something. And I always make this point. I have a son. I don't know if you have. I do. Kids. do you? I have, I have a, a six-year-old son, and I want my son to be the best that he can be. There's never a point where my son is going to say to me, Dad, you hate me because you want me to be the best version of myself. And I look at America as the <laughs> same way. If you love something, when you actually want that place to be the best that I can be. Yeah. So constructive criticism and trying to push that country to be better, to me, that's the most patriotic things you can do. But what I've realized is what America is for me is not what America is for Scott or Michael Farber. And so, therefore, me wanting America to be this thing, that's my own version of America. And you have people who can't sympathize with the fact that America is not for a white man what it is for Jim St. Germain. And that's a part of the struggle. I think you can, though. So that, that's the issue. And that's like the thing where I'm coming up against. So like enormous frustration about, you know, the fact that there are, there's just so many people that are closed off to any ideas about change and yep. are so closed-minded. And especially right now, just like you know, just, it's like cult-like behavior, like, you know, ignore the evidence of your eyes and ears. Um, I think though, and I can't say this for everyone, but I think you can make people care. I think information- I'm trying, trust I, me, I'm trying. I have I, all kind of friends, and, and, by, and, and by you, I mean like royal you, we, royal we. Um, no, and I think it's, I think it's through cons constant challenging of the current narrative. I think it's really, you know, it's through storytelling. It's what I'm yeah. trying to do on a day-to-day -day basis. Like yeah. You know, in court, it's public defenders, going back to like, what are public defenders? Honestly, storytellers. Like, we're storytellers. <laughs> yep. We complicate the narrative. Like we get a piece of paper and most people think about the person coming through the system as a name and a charge. Yeah. And docket the, number. And, docket number, uh, you know, and and the, the product of their, their criminal record. And what, you know, our job is to do is to tell a more complicated narrative about who this person is 
is, how they got where they are, where they want to be, not just for sport, but because everyone's more complicated. Same, same thing with, with the system. And so, you know, I do that inside of court and through Twitter and other methods, for right. example, like right. right now, you know, just try to try to complicate the narrative and explain to folks, meet people where they are, but explain to folks at the baseline, you know, we're talking about trying to not just like make humans healthier, but make the country healthier for the, for the good of all of us. And, and the fact that it, it, it matters, it should matter to folks that are not criminalized. Yeah. Go Two quick questions, yeah. and then I'm shut up. Three Sorry. quick questions. Um, yeah. <laughs> Four. Yeah. Five. Um, you know, you know. Um, that work, I find myself doing that work a lot in terms of speaking to folks and trying to humanize myself in some ways and other people that look like me. Um, and in some ways, it's a little bit not as challenging for me because I was born in Haiti. And so I didn't grow up in like close proximity to white oppression like most African-Americans did. Um, so I, sometimes I can take a step back a little bit, right? Um, I, I have that kind of privilege in a sense. I mean, I'm also good with just talking to people. Um, but not all my friends can do that. And I think to a certain degree, they shouldn't have to do that. I actually think it's incumbent upon individuals like yourself and Farber to do some of that work, especially with your white friends in places that someone that looks like me with this beautiful nappy head can't get into. Um, Extremely jealous. <laughs> thank you, Scott. Love it. Um, and how do you do that work? Which, I mean, you do it all the time, but for the folks listening who... We want them to take something out of this. Is how do they have that conversation with their loved ones, their family members, and is there a way to go about it where you won't push them away completely, but yet still engage them in trying to stay away from it? And secondly, um, can you drop some nuggets for individuals listening to this in terms of how they can maintain and keep their rights when it comes to interacting with police officers on a daily basis? Sure. Start with the second one. The just one big nugget: uh, talking to police. Shut, in other, shut the fuck up. In other words, talk, don't talk. The the most important and powerful words you can say is not "I don't want to talk," not you know "I want to maintain my right to silence." Is to say "I want to speak to a lawyer." Ooh, when you say wow. "I want to speak to a lawyer," you invoke two different of the Bill of Rights. You invoke the fifth and Sixth Amendment right to silence. Yep. And I'll just say from practice, when those words are used, the police actually will follow that law. This is before or after an arrest? This is really at any time, <laughs> I would say. I mean, it's, here's the other thing. I'm going to balance right? it. It's Miranda, and it's also the Sixth Amendment right to silence. Yep. And two different forms of silence wind up interacting to prevent... Uh, the police from coming back. So if you just say, I don't want to talk, or if you just say, I want to remain silent, under the law, they actually can you know, wait a little bit and come back and try to, try to talk to you again under the Fifth Amendment. But if you say, I want my right to a lawyer, not only does that say, I want to be silent under the Fifth Amendment, that also... So, it, it, also set, it also sets it no, but it also sets an emotion law surrounding the Sixth Amendment, which means this, the questioning has to cease immediately and cannot be renewed. It's just like, but so, so bottom line, let's not get so complicated. Yeah. It's just say, I want to speak to attorney. But what I will say is this, 
when you interact, it's very hard for me sometimes to have conversations with, with folks who I represent when I'm talking about exercising their, right, their rights, because there's a lot of things that I would say and do when a police officer comes up to me that may in fact be extremely dangerous. For me to say. For you to say, or for yep. someone who, um, <laughs> who I'm representing to say, you know, on the, on the street when there aren't body cameras and yep. when you're not taking film and police escalation happens all the time. Um, so Anyway, anyway, but if you are arrested, you know, talking to the police is not going to help you. Yeah. They'll tell you it will, and it's not going to. Um, what was your first question? Uh, the first one is, how do you get white yeah. folks you know? to, to, to care? I, 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 I think... That's I, a trillion dollar question, Scott. Well, no, it's, I mean, look, it, it, it depends on the white folk. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, I'll say that the work that I've done with my family, and, you know, my family's not monolithic. There are right. some folks that are more conservative than others, usually kind of the, the older generations. And, but um, it was what, was... what was interesting was I was telling the same stories to my grandfather-in-law about kind of the impact um, of the system on the people I serve, the fact that people felt in tra- you know, trapped in invisible cages in their own neighborhoods, yeah. uh, about the kind of disproportionate sentencing, about just walking into court and seeing those statistics come to life and looking around and seeing the demographics um, and talking about po- police and prosecutor misconduct. His mind didn't really start to change until iPhones, until mm. he, he started seeing it for himself. And I mm. remember there was this moment, maybe like, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago when he actually came up and he was like, you're right. You know, when he was seeing police officers literally shoot uh, black men running away from them, clearly not in danger, in their backs, when he saw Eric Garner get strangled on camera in broad daylight. Um, so it's, uh, there's, no, there's no single answer. It's, it's, it depends on the white person. But what I will just say is that um, there right now is an increased opportunity to have these complicated conversations and more nuanced conversations with folks who are very far removed from the system because they're seeing that the narratives that we're talking about are not just one-off, um, you know, isolated incidents, that there's real systemic problems. They're seeing it with their eyes and ears. And they're hearing, well, they're seeing it with their eyes, hearing it with their ears. <laughs> so I want to go a little bit, uh, we've been going kind of macro here. <clears throat> go ahead. The, the whole, Jim, you're, you're, the, you're, you know, question two for Scott. Like, I just, I can't, I just, I just have to like reject like the premise. Like, I, I the, like the talk, how, how do you speak to a police officer? You know, mm-hmm. your rights. This talk of this parent-child socialization has just been going on forever. Yeah. And also it implies that, um, there's something that you did wrong that enabled your arrest in the first mm-hmm. place. Yeah. Like, yeah. With this, like there's some causality there or whatever, which is complete bullshit. They're going to yeah. get you anyway. That's you true. know, do you think yeah. kids in the suburbs know the, you know, the history of the, f- the fifth and the sixth amendment? They like, don't have they to. They don't need to. But there's a different history. There, I hear though. you. I hear you. I'm, I'm of two minds of it, right? Yep. There's, yep. there's just being practical and smart in, in the reality that we live within. Oh, of course. But then also there's like the, I can't untie it from the respectability politics thing. It's no, like, I yo, agree. you know, th- there are certain things that you do to enable racism. Like, it is partly your fault. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying that that's what you're saying or like or even what you mean, but yeah. like that, I can't untie it from that, <clears throat> which is completely sort of farcical, yeah. like fucking premise. And I, and it's just like, I, it's, it's, it drives me crazy. Yeah, I mean, look, as a father, you know, it's, I think about this every day since my before my son was born, right? Is that he lives in a country where I pretty much have to look at him in the eyes and said, There will be a time 
where nothing other than the color of your skin, your beautiful skin, and the texture of your hair will bring you in the line of fire, right? And there is no harder conversation to have when you're a parent, when you're a father of a black child. On the other side, I tell them, it's not you, it's these people, they fucked up, they're gonna put you in this position anyway, but that's the reality. And I have to have that conversation with him, though I don't want to have it with him, mm-hmm. right? Because I want him to be treated like his white friends would be treated. But I know that his reality in America is different. He's right. not gonna be treated like my friend's kids will be treated, like Scott's kids will be treated. And so how do you, I keep my son alive also while telling him, you're not the problem. You know, there is a history that preceded you that in some ways insecure people are so afraid of your own beauty and the things that you bring that will make them put you at risk. There is no harder conversation to have, but I got to have that conversation with him because I need him to come back home because that police officer may not give a fuck about the fact that it's not my son and that my son is not inherently a criminal. I I just have to try to keep him alive, right? And so, yeah, I'm with you on that. The respectability respectability politics is bullshit and I shouldn't have to do it. Yeah, but I, but you have to when you have a child. It's just impossible. And you brought this up—the rape analogy, one of the past episodes. Yeah. Right. What was she wearing? Right. How you just shift mm. the causality to the victim? <sighs> yeah, yeah. And it's just like, yo, what was she wearing? Yeah, like, did, did she ask for it? Like, it's it's com- it's a complete apt comparison. Right. It's crazy. It's there's you're damned I, I, if you I agree, do it. You're damned which is if you why don't. this work is important, right? What we do yeah. here, because on one hand we got to do this, on the other hand I also have to keep that's my son alive. Right. Right. And so. That's that's America. Um, and, and which is why, look, I, I, I can't forget this experience I had. I went to London last summer. And it was the strangest shit ever because walking around in London, I find myself thinking like, fuck, maybe I should move my son here. Now, granted, I would rather raise my son in Haiti, but his mother is African-American. So she has an experience and a history here. Mm-hmm. And I know he won't necessarily love Haiti as much, especially at this age. But I thought that what's a city that's most like the city he's, he's, he was born in, but the same city where he can actually walk somewhere and may not get shot and killed? For no mm-hmm. other fact than the fact that in London, the police don't carry guns. That alone, walking around mm-hmm. in London, made me feel just a little bit freer. Like, oh, shit. If someone called the cops on me here or if the cops deem me doing something wrong there's at least a small chance that I may make it alive to the precinct. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean they're less racist and I won't get arrested, but at least I won't get killed in that moment simply for being black because they don't carry guns. And these are the types of things you think about on a regular basis when you're a black father. And it's fucked up. You shouldn't have to think about it, but that's the reality. So I'm with you. You know, It's just, yeah. but, but we see it all the time. And you bring up a good point. Last, last, last history rant. I promise. But you talked about like London and, and Great Britain just being a, a different society than America, right? I mean, and and then and Scott brought this up earlier. Mass incarceration is 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 quite old. Yep. You know, you talk about in the time of, of Jim Crow in the South, which is just effectively in and of itself as a police state. You look at the incarceration numbers in the North, and they're quite high. 
there's a disparity of like five or seven to one black to white incarceration. It's high in the North, low in the South, during Jim Crow South, up into Civil Rights Act of 64, um, where, which basically dismantles Jim Crow, Plessy versus Ferguson. And then what happens from there? The incarceration rate, the incarceration rate from the South rises and takes on the features of the North. And then you then, and then, and, and, and so you gotta ask why, why would that be? Because Jim Crow basically was a, a, a system of social control, and its its sort of uh, its counterpart in the North was incarceration as a system of social control. Like it's a it's a clear correlation there um, that just exists, and you know existed before the numerous drug wars throughout the 20th century, and it's going to continue to exist after the drug war is gone. Um, it's just a crazy thing that. Is out of the is, is out of the control or the agency of the individual, which is I, I just look at it just so broad. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Re- really briefly on agency, tying both what you said together, um, you know, you, you talked about the importance of you know white maybe public defenders or lawyers talking to other you know white folks. Um, I'm not sure that's that's also the answer. I mean, so number you know, number one in court, the court is designed to shut people up and shut people down, and the people right. that are getting shut up and shut down systemically are black and brown people. When I'm standing up and if a client of mine starts trying to talk to the judge, the judge says, speak to your lawyer. And so I'm really wary of outside of court replicating that same kind of system that like Mm -hmm. I'm the one that should be speaking on behalf of the people who are oppressed. I think there's a partnership element to it. I think, you know, what I've been trying to do in my advocacy outside of court is not just be like talk to talk to folks who I represent and say, hey, do you want to tell your story to the press or do you want to get out there? But really engaging them on the issues, acknowledging how effed up the system is and uh, kind of engage them as partners and, and, and uh, you know, so that they do have agency yeah. over, no. these, over these issues and, uh, you know, are not just given voice, but just voice. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> their, their, you know, what, what's happening to them. And I think yeah. that actually we've seen that has uh, more of an impact than, than someone like me who, yeah, I'm in the system, but I'm still very removed from the experience 100%. of feeling systematized. Yeah, and, and I wanted to, you know, I, I hope that's not what you got from no, that question earlier, um, because I, you know, I epitomize that those closest to the struggles should be closest to the power to change that. And so my question earlier was more around knowing that I live in a highly segregated country, in a highly segregated, quote unquote, liberal city, which look at our school system as one of the best examples of that. My question was, the average black person I know and grew up with was simply not in white circles, vice versa, even with gentrification. Yep. You know, like you, could, you can go to Crown Heights where I grew up now and still see segregation in a neighborhood that's been black and Hasidic Jews forever, right? And so my thing was like, since some of us won't be able to get into these circles, yep. how crucial it would be for individuals to just have that conversation amongst each other, exactly. not necessarily for those who are being oppressed and taking away their voices. Exactly. It's a combination. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That partnership, you're right. So. Um, I'm going to bring up a, it kind of wow. mixes in a few things that we've talked about today. So one, uh, Cuomo adding the 500 police, right? Oh, good one. Um, this is something we were talking about off air. Um, so, and this is all about fair evasion. So for some people who are in New York, some of the listeners who maybe just been what, seeing this on Twitter, there've been a lot of videos of late and this has been happening forever, but, uh, there was a specific video that actually happened at the subway stop right by where I live on the Franklin stop where it seems like, a, uh, all you saw was a video of all these police with guns drawn on a kid. Uh, apparently, he jumped a turnstile, which is just an insane thing. So this beef up in policing is basically this war on fair evasion, which is a war on the poor, which is, of course, a war on uh, young black and brown kids. 
Is this kind of a, a permutation of stop and frisk? Is this kind of the new entity of where this is evolving? It, it's not new. It's old. Arresting uh, <laughs> uh, people for, for fare evasion um, is one of the most common arrests yep. in, in New York City. Uh, people have this impression that like, hey, they're not paying their fare. Something needs to happen because they're just like purposely jumping the turnstile for sport. The reality is not a single person I've ever represented are doing that. The people who I represent cannot afford 275, let alone 550 round trips. In New York I City, with 275 ser- most seriously, in New York City, I view public transportation as a human right. You need public transportation Literally. to get to and, to get to uh, appointments, to get to jobs, to get to job interviews, to go to, to get, court. To go to I court. I remember I used to jump the turnstile and go to court when I was a kid. Isn't that crazy? It's not crazy because it's because it's expensive and it's what what needs to happen. People people. Uh, are, are jumping the turnstile because they need to get to places to make appointments and they don't have the money. And the other piece is, you know, where are the police situated to pick up people who are jumping the turnstile, mostly in black and brown, brown neighborhoods, neighborhoods. Yeah. right? Go ahead. No, I'm sorry, not only placed there, but actually ordered to stop black and brown yeah. people, which I know for sure, not only having been stopped myself, but having one of my closest friends who's a police officer, Edwin Raymond, who's been fighting its own police department because he's been given instruction directly. You're stopping too many white people. Mm-hmm. You need to go here and there. We need black and brown individuals in particular has been given orders to do this. So not only they're placed in positions to arrest these people, but are actually told you're stopping too many white individuals, which Bloomberg actually was on the, on tape recently saying the same thing, he, saying that we're stopping too many white individuals and we need to st- stop more black and browns, yeah, which goes back systemic. to your point earlier. That's systemic. It's yeah. not bad apple cops. Yep. That's systemic. Well, which is what Edwin says all the time. By the way, we got to have him on the pod. But yeah, it's that you have these individual cops who a lot of times they would say to you, well, if you don't want me to do this, then change the system. This is the law that your legislators pass and I'm just following it. Sometimes it's just a cop out, but... You know, no, but but I mean, the, if you look at the arrest rates, it's over ninety percent are black and brown, and we know that it, that's not who, you know who's yeah. jumping the turnstile. But it goes back to this idea of, you know, what is the criminal legal system supposed to be for? The, the sense kind of. Uh, that we all have is that if there's a public nuisance, we need to throw the book at it. When you could just maybe think about the fact that uh, we should take the money that we're spending arresting someone for a fair evasion, which by the way is $1,750 per arrest, yep. and instead put that money toward fair fares or indigent met- metro cards or, or free metro cards yep. to allow people to actually go in. If you, and to go back to the 500 cops, 500 police officers, what does that mean? So even if you take away all benefits and everything else and you just assume all those 500 officers are just coming at the base salary of uh, $42,000 and instead took that money and gave it to the 50,000 something people who were arrested for fare evasion in 2018, you'd give something like 470, be able to give $475 to each of those people just for public transportation. But the other thing that the 500 cops does is, first of all, those are unnecessary police-police interactions. Yep. So what do we know with unnecessary police-police interactions? They're more likely to escalate, which is what you've been seeing within these videos. I met that young man. He's represented by our office. And that young man uh, d- didn't even jump the turnstile, right? Oh, wow. Let alone have anything, you know, let alone have anything on him. And he had guns drawn on him, let, you know, not even to mention all the, the bystanders who were there with their families and seeing, you know, officers rush during rush hour, the, 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 the train with guns drawn. He hasn't been able to sleep. He's traumatized. Yeah. Um, and, and, and for what? And so, you know, it's an example, a very clear example of 
just throwing money and energy into a losing uh, and damaging and traumatic proposition when there's just such a more reasonable option. Scott, someone's crunched the numbers recently um, and they find out that if New York City, New York State, MTA would give, I think, a yearly metric card to every individual who's been arrested for jumping the turnstile, that would save, <laughs> that would save the state $250 million versus hiring those 500 cops. Mm -hmm. I think the 500 cops cost the, the state and the city combined about $450 million. And if you give everyone a monthly metric card, a yearly metric card, I think it's around $200 million. I mean, yep. I'm playing with the numbers a little bit, but yeah, any, either way, the difference is about $250 million. Mm -hmm. But yet, in a liberal, quote-unquote, city, we're still going forward with this. With the Democratic is, governor. Yep. Um, what are, are, are there any laws or just certain things? I mean, I'm sure there's a ton, but is there one or two right now that are the ones that you feel like are the least known that you're fighting the most that people should know about? Mm, good question. So there, there are so many, but I'd also, I'd, I'd like to lift up some of the ones that are currently, that where there's legislation currently introduced and there's the, the, the possibility to change, right? So number one, we already talked about repeal 50A, Civil Rights Law 50A, which, is, which basically suppresses all information about NYPD discipline. It's important for people who are accused of crimes by police, let alone you know, the, the rest of you know, the public, to know who's patrolling our streets. That's number one. Number two, people probably know this, but we have the chance this year, we had it last year, to legalize marijuana. Um, and not just legalize marijuana, but do it in a way that actually gives priority to future business owners who live in the communities that yep. have been hurt Those the most by the, the war price. on drugs. Yeah. Number three, uh, there's legislation for broader decriminalization of sex work. But one of the specific laws uh, that, that um, we're, we're focusing on is the law to decriminalize what's essentially walking while trans. Um, it's, it's, uh, in, it, this law enables the police to arrest people for facilitate, uh, not facilitating, for, uh, for prostitution-related offenses just for walking around dressed in certain clothes um, and allows the police to assume that they're engaging in prostitution. Uh, and what it winds up doing is, is targeting and over-policing uh, predominantly uh, people who are transgender. Uh, and the fifth piece that I just would say is that there's two bills right now in New York uh, that are focused on parole. One is called Less is More, the other is called the Elder Parole Bill. Elder Parole Bill would make, um, make it so anyone that's been incarcerated for over 15 years and is, 15, and is 55 years or older, just eligible, eligible for parole. It's who not are, saying they're going to be released. Who are less likely to commit, recommit, by the way, the, the elder population, yes. which we find out. Yeah, by the time but the, by the time you serve that amount of time, there is evidence to suggest, you know, there's it's overwhelming evidence uh, that you're very unlikely to reoffend. Um, so just giving them the chance to show rehabilitation, show redemption, show the possibility that they should be released. That's one side. So that's on kind of the back end. On the front end, less is more would make it um, would outlaw incarceration for just technical parole violations. A full third of new prison admissions in New York are people that are readmitted for non-criminal offenses who are out of parole, missing curfew, failure to notify about a change in address, being in the presence of someone that has a criminal record. And if you live in certain communities, there's no one Almost without criminal around, involvement, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, if being tested for, for, for alcohol. This is a model that's, that's 
happening throughout the rest of the country. Um, so uh, the, the, the movement to basically make it so you can't be, first of all, incarcerated on a Rikers Island for an average, by the way, of 99 days for one of these offenses, um, and then incarcerated after that uh, back upstate prison for these technical parole violations. It would lead to decarceration in local jails and uh, enable people to actually succeed when they get out of jail, you know, when they get out of, when they get out of prison on parole. And so um, I can get a lot more into each one of those, but if you want to focus on five priority issues, it's parole, it's, de it's decriminalization of sex work, it's legalization of marijuana, it's increased police transparency. Are you involved in, I'm going to plug in my, my mentor, um, the Miranda Bill, um, my mentor Marty Feynman has been um, supporting this Miranda Bill for juveniles, which we would think that is available, but it's not. Right. Um, are you, are you uh, involved with that? legislation at all? Um, are you guys in, I mean, I know Legal Aid is supporting it. We're, we're in oh, support of it as well. Great. Awesome. Well, you want to just I, briefly describe the Miranda? Nope. <laughs> I, I'd love for you. No, your turn this time. <laughs> no, you did a lot of talking. You got <laughs> it. Um, so we, earlier we talked about when, so if you see When They See Us, a big part of that series was um, the process where police officers can interrogate kids um, by doing all sorts of illegal things, including offering them food or pressuring the parents of the kids saying, hey, um, if your son do not talk, I will make sure you lose that job. So now that father is having to choose between feeding this, his entire family versus having his kids give up its rights and pretty much its future. Um, so cops use all these illegal tactics and draconian kind of ways of um, getting information from kids and young people and then use that information against them. So the Miranda rights pretty much um, gives that young person the ability to not talk and to not incriminalize themselves. And so in New York State, uh, believe it or not, the police, police officers can still go ahead and proceed and, and push young people to make them talk and, and use that information against them to then indict them later on. So there's a bill currently being pushed by Marty Feynman, the legal aid, and um, Youssef, Dr. Youssef Salon is supporting it. You guys are also so a lot of things happening still in a progressive state. Yeah, but but if you listen to the New York Post, uh, this is you know reformers who are trying to pull a fast one with like some crazy wish list of of reforms over the you know uh, just put push it past law enforcement and against public safety. These are common sense, reasonable reforms that are not only going to help people but they're going to save money and they're going to ultimately make the streets safer. Yeah. And, and we need to like just take away this idea that law enforcement, that they really have public safety at heart, what they have, what they have, they, they want to maintain power. Yeah. The, the, the blowback in the media sometimes can be really interesting. Um, I'm sure you all know the name of the person who just became the DA in San Francisco. DA? Chesa. Yeah. yeah. And so he's obviously very progressive. And the amount of people I know that seems to be a ton in the tech community, but who I thought were fairly moderate progressive people who were freaking the F out. And they're like, oh, so what? We're just going to be people shitting on our streets everywhere. They're going to let everything wow. go. That's always they're, the excuse. It, it, it's just, yeah, it's always you know people just breaking, you know, yeah. uh, there's this whole freak out because he's trying not to criminalize certain things that are basically like, criminalizing the poor that suddenly that means that he doesn't care about actually enforcing regular laws and it's so funny how just 
trying to help some people suddenly means disorder in their eyes. Yeah. Um, it, it, law and order. Yeah, it, it's 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 the most fucked up excuse they always come up with, and it doesn't even make sense. And 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 sometimes <laughs> when people come up with that doesn't stuff, like, man, to. can you actually make a valid argument? Like, can you actually look at data and facts argument. and numbers? Because the, the 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 look at let's look at New York City for for example. Um, fighting stop and frisk and changing some of the things we've changed over the years. Look, the city has not been taken over by, you know, these criminals jumping out of windows and robbing and raping people in, in, in broad day. Look, crime is going to happen. And when someone is supporting these progressive ideas, it doesn't mean that they just want people to get hurt. And it's just always the excuse, oh, you just want criminals running around and taking over the city, which is the dumbest fucking Thing these people can come up with. People assume people assume defenders when I talk about <clears throat> talk about these you know reforms and some of them are I wouldn't even call reforms but real transformative changes. Um, they, they assume that I'm just coming at it from the point of I just want to get my clients yeah. out and you know heavy quotations. Mm. But again, it's so much more than that. We just have different ideas about how to get to the solution that or, that you claim to want. Right. And part of it is having patience. So like, you know, decriminalization or just refusing to prosecute things like sleeping on the street, so homelessness, uh, fair evasion, so the crime of, of uh, a crime of poverty, yep. uh, inability to afford, you know, driving to suspend a license because you can't afford to pay your, uh, your, your, your tickets, uh, stealing a bar of soap from or, or food from uh, a bodega because you're hungry. There's this sense that like we're just letting criminals off the hook because again we're so ingrained with this fact that like the only way to solve these societal ills is by criminalization. And we're not saying those things are good. In fact, we're agreeing they are not good. Homelessness, not good. Poverty, not good. Hunger, not good. <laughs> but if you give if you reinvest resources, you can do it literally one for one. Reinvest the resources that would have cost arresting, prosecuting, jailing, imprisoning people for each one of those quote unquote crimes. And instead, for that person who's sleeping on the street, invest in affordable housing. Instead, for those people that are dr uh, jumping the turnstile, invest in affordable metro, metro fare. Yeah. Instead, for those people that are, you know, <clears throat> stealing low level amounts of stuff from bodegas, uh, you know, provide them with, you know, it just poverty alleviation, you wind up maybe half a year, a year, two years down the road with a much safer, healthier, fairer society. Yep. The question is, are we as a society going to have patience for that kind of change? Or are we going to let the same fear mongering that got us into this mess perpetuate it? We're seeing that right now in New York. We, we passed historic bail reforms and discovery reforms that are based on successes in other states. And everyone, all the, all the pro-carceral forces are saying blood's going to be running through the streets. <laughs> it's not, right? But they're already getting legislators to pass repeal laws before it even has gone into effect yet and scaring the crap out of people. Um, and let me tell you, bad things are going to happen. Not because of the bail laws, but because bad things yeah. happen now. Yeah. Bad things yeah, are going to happen. Yep. And they're going to weaponize those tragedies or try to, to try to roll back these changes. And we as a society need to have tolerance for that. So obviously the, at the state level and the local level is probably where most of this happens, but we're headed into 2020. Um, is, uh, are there any of the candidates right now that, you know, district attorneys seemingly, or dis sorry, public defenders keep doing that, um, are seemingly more behind or like some of the, the proposals that they're putting forward? I, I wish 
all of the candidates went went uh, farther farther ahead. I want I'm really <laughs> I really want folks to move beyond the non non nons, the non felonies, the non violent, the non sex. Because that's that's the stuff that there is like broad bipartisan agreement on. But there should be bi- broad bipartisan agreement on the, the tougher stuff. So how do we respond to violent crime? Um, uh, because let me tell you, prison doesn't solve violence, right? Prison actually right. another amazing book. Plug Danielle Sered's oh, Until yeah, We yeah, Reckon. She's yeah. extraordinary, restorative justice. Yeah. She points out the fact that the four characteristics of prison, isolation, shame, deprivation of economic opportunity, and violence itself are the exact drivers of violence, right? So I, I just wish that national politicians took the opportunity to really push the envelope. Frankly, it would be, I think, good politically because you can't, there's no, there's no way to, to kind of distinguish between the platforms. I like the fact that some candidates are talking about abolishing mandatory minimums. I think that's kind of a next step, uh, next step thing. At this point, honestly, though, I just want to start narrowing down the pool and whoever becomes right. the candidate get fully behind them because I am just, I've, I, I am terrified um, of, of a continuation, a second term of, of, of Trump, Trumpism. I don't think our country can, can survive it. Well, I think we could keep going for hours here, but I think we're out of time, fellas. Scott, uh, you're a good man. We appreciate right the work you, you do, man. Appreciate Thank it, you Scott. For and for all you listening, follow Scott on Twitter. Slide when in you learn DM. a lot more about this, don't, don't slide in the DMs. No, good for questions. The, you can't know? <laughs> <laughs> volunteer somebody. You can't. Wait, who's, who's volunteering down. what? And you probably can. What's up? Yeah, you should follow you on Twitter. Yes, thank you. What's your handle? It's Scott, S-C-O-T-T-H-E-C-H. Yeah. Slide and man's dropping the truth end. every day. So if you, some, you some want legal more of this conversation, um, all right, fellas, uh, it's a wrap. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for having me. Peace. Peace. Peace.